I'm Nicolene Berger. And I'm Joanna Vosloe. And this is Eret. Welcome, Eret listeners. Um, today we have Dr. Stella Fulhun here, and um, I want to introduce the speaker by telling a little story of um, how I met Stella the first time, and that was in visual studies as a lecturer. And I think the first uh, module we had together was on the sublime and romanticism. And it left such an impression on me that I actually the first oil paintings I ever made I named after you. I don't know if you know that. I but did not know that. No. <laughs> they were called Stella number one and number two. Oh, that's hilarious. Because <laughs> I was so moved by that module that I completely fell in love with that style of painting. And then also when Keith um, gave me an oil painting workshop the first time, I just immediately went into that romantic style and then thought I'd, I'd name them Stella but then also <laughs> super funny <laughs> but then also um your classes were always the the most inspiring Aww. and energizing and like I was just in awe of the way that you taught thank always. you so much that's super humbling to hear that thank <laughs> you so much yeah and then the the most funny example of how this kind of played out is after your um module first module we had um we had a, a very good teacher afterwards, just a normal teacher, but I think in comparison to the way that you kind of stepped into class, like as of onto the stage, <laughs> and, like, and also one of the modules you taught us was called Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, and yeah. um, how uh, it was just like so exciting and, and energizing that there was this meme that went around in our class group. Um, from Modern Family and the the main guy um, Jay the old man yeah. he has his dog called Stella yes. and then um, yes yeah. and then Cam loses Stella and this meme <laughs> where Cam is standing in the street screaming Stella, Stella! Yes. And, and, and our group kind of passed that meme oh, on man. after that having a so class with funny. you because <laughs> we're like where is Stella we need Stella <laughs> oh, man, that's hilarious thank you you have yeah you've seriously made my day that, that was just the best story. Thank you. It is amazing. I can't top that story, but I was part of that, you know, Stella fan club. And I remember it was, it was. I mean, I also know you. Stella is my supervisor at the moment. Yeah. And I also know you just, I feel like, from so Socially, many different yeah. um, social directions. Mm. Um, but I remember also I was your assistant at a, That's at a right. time. I don't know if you remember of that. Of course I did. <laughs> And the other day, Rue also reminded me, my brother, that we somehow went to the National Library for to me do to do research for me. And he was just so shocked that I was basically taking pictures of Paul <laughs> for my job at yeah, the yeah, university. Yeah. So I just think like your research, in, your research interests in like men's magazines yeah, and masculinity, we, we and it's corrupted poor Rue. Yeah, it's just all these cool, fun topics, really yeah. like. Uh, have such a big impact on people so we are so happy for you to be on this podcast which i guess was in some sense inspired by the the visual studies upbringing that you gave us yeah it was so nice to hear your shout out in the first episode when you spoke about that so thank you yeah no just wonderful and such a privilege to be here and have this conversation with you guys 
Awesome. So we're going to talk about guilty pleasures today, which is quite exciting. And then maybe starting with the first question, what is a guilty pleasure? Yeah, I mean, it's not like I have a definitive answer for that. (laughs) But I guess it's the series and the books or the popular culture that we know are kitsch, but that we love anyway. Mm. Um, Roland Barthes, writing in the 1970s, differentiated between readerly and writerly texts. Mm -hmm. And so his answer to this question of what is a guilty pleasure is really has to do with difficulty or with ease. And so for him, a a readerly text was a text that you consume passively, um, like a soap opera. It was something that you don't need to interpret too much, that you can just let it wash over you. Um, that you don't need to engage with actively uh, versus a writerly text which requires active engagement Mm. Um, like an article in the Daily Maverick or in the New York Times or a really difficult sort of complex cerebral film like Schenectady in New York or whatever it's something that you need to think that you need to interpret that you need to decipher And in this way, you're kind of adding meaning even as you're reading. Mm. Um, And so so in a sense, you're you're kind of co-writing alongside the real author, which is what, you know, why Bart describes difficult texts and and texts that we don't feel guilty over as writerly texts Mm. and and tabloids and texts, you know, sci-fi sort of like tabloids or whatever, those kind of like who did it and where did they did it, do it and what is the government hiding from us. And those, you know, those, those kinds of narratives are often readily. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting. That's very interesting. So why do you think then are certain texts comforting? Um, I think precisely because we enjoy them passively without having to do any work. Um, and our laziness in terms of literacy is often matched by a kind of ideological laziness. So in other words, we find comfort watching or reading texts that confirm our political or our moral or our existential beliefs. Mm. Um, And this is sometimes where they're thought of as a bad thing. You know, this is sometimes why they're thought of as controversial or or negative. Um, But, you know, I think we all need times of rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, There's value in difficulty. There's value in in reading or watching things that require an investment from us. And I think someone like Jonathan Franzen has spoken really articulately about this. I think it was the beginning of Infinite Jest, which was the book, that that sort of tome, which was written by David Foster Wallace. Jonathan Franzen was kind of like, why should we read this book? It's such hard work. It's so long, you know. And he says there's there's real value in difficulty. There's real value in pushing through and struggling with something. And there's a lot of research that's been done in the last 15 years about the kind of neurological benefits of wrestling with something. Mm-hmm. Having a text that's, that's immersive, that you really kind of almost drown in, that you struggle with, that you, you know, every day you wake up, you think, I don't want to read this, I don't want to watch this, it's too much hard work. But you continue and you push through. It, it, neurologically, it's very good for us to do that. But on the other hand, it's also important I think, to read something that's easy, that's fun, that's entertainment, that's restful, mm-hmm. and that lifts our spirits. And sometimes in the process, we end up watching things that kind of confirm the ideas that we already have. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of guilty pleasure in mm-hmm. that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's almost also as though people who are more likely to do that, you know, to engage with writerly texts and who are engaged and struggle through, they, I feel like the the 
the buzz that you get from guilty pleasures are almost escalated because you are always doing, if you're always doing that, then it's just that, that ease that comes with yeah. uh, a guilty pleasure is yeah. just so much more enjoyable. Yeah. And on the other hand, I felt that there's a, there's a period where if you go too much into your guilty pleasures, it's that saying like bubblegum in bubblegum yeah. out where you yeah. literally feel like my brain cells are dying yeah, yeah, and I, I'm here for it. But at, there's some point where you almost it's physically difficult to continue watching yeah, you put your yeah. body through strain yeah. <laughs> or reading or whatever yeah, yeah, no, so that's absolutely. fascinating yeah, yeah yeah and I think that combination of guilty and pleasure I mean mm. I think there's there's pleasure in guilt as yeah. well <laughs> yeah there's pleasure in doing something that you think is kind of shameful uh, yeah. there's something transgressive about that and enjoyable about it you, you're being naughty you're yeah. being a naughty girl <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah in terms of comfort what comes up for me because mostly when I engage in my guilty pleasures it's while I'm painting or while I'm in the studio because it allows me to not have to engage my mind in something difficult and I can let it go it, it all my mind almost becomes blank like expansive yeah. and then then that this easy text that's just running in the background allows my mind to not then get to fixated on what yes. I'm painting so it yes. allows me to really release and then I can just you yeah. know paint but if I have something that's challenging in the background right. I get distracted and then I get more critical about what I'm creating as well which oh, is interesting, interesting to me yeah yeah that's super yeah. interesting yeah my I have a cousin who I consider to be like one of the smartest people I know but while he's cooking, he'll watch like Transformers, you know. Films. I'm like, how, how is this even happening? But it's kind of the same thing. Like he watches yeah. them over and over again and there's a sort of comfort in that. Mm. Yeah, I also tend to watch things over and yeah. over because I consume such a volume because I can paint for six hours. It just plays yeah. in the background and then I'll watch the same things over yeah. and over. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, they're comforting. So is it, uh, are we going to go over into a category? Yeah, um, I mean, maybe I think it's worth saying that, you know, guilty pleasures aren't all equal. Yeah. Um, and they aren't all the same. And different people have different kinds of guilty pleasures. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth talking about sort of almost different categories of dif dif guilty pleasures. Yes. You know, what are the sort of genres of guilty pleasure? Um, and I think one of my favorites, and I mean, the, the question I suppose that comes up is whether... Guilty pleasures are gendered, but even if we park that question or put a pin in it, I suppose one of the genres that I, even since I was a child, really indulged in quite a lot, and particularly around this time of the year, is kind of the romance genre. Mm, yes, you know? yes. Really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the films and books and series that we consume um, that indulge a kind of romantic nostalgia or a kind of desire for desire you know mm. the way in which we we want to be desirable but also we want to desire we want an object of desire um and the different yeah versions of that like have you guys got romantic examples of popular culture that you consume um in terms of to watch period dramas right yes exactly. like that i anything period drama series i've watched yeah. <laughs> and I, I often feel guilty about it because the narrative is so it's so normative it's so easy like it's you know there's nothing challenging about it the characters are often very like beautiful and attractive the women play certain roles in the house the men it's like it's very straightforward yes mm. and it's that undying love you know like that longing and 
which I know I'm in a romantic relationship and I know other people in romantic relationships, it's not the way that it plays out in reality. It's actually not constructive in the way to teach me anything about how to be in a relationship. It's actually the other way around because often the assumptions and the spontaneity is kind of highlighted and it's like everything just magically happens perfectly (laughs) in the end and it's like happily ever after where I know it often stops where the story actually starts, the nitty gritty actually starts, like they get married and then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's actually when the real work starts. Yeah. 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 Sort of like the happy, the happy films end with marriage. And the really pessimistic pessimistic darker films like Revolutionary Road begin with marriage. (laughs) That's so true. I also like with the, and it's interesting that I'm, I'm, I feel like 98% of the romance films that I've watched, um, I guess since I'm not a teenager anymore, has been by myself. Right. Like I'll do it mm. if my partner is like away for the yeah. night or whatever, then I'm like, yes, yeah. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and because it's that, you know, that kind of just confirms, I yeah. guess, that it is a guilty pleasure. But it's yeah. like when I watch it with someone else and they put that judgment right. there, it like completely destroys ruins the pleasure. The yeah, pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very adamant of like, this is something I do, do on my own. I don't even yeah. want to tell people that I'm, yeah. you know, doing it. But I've also recently rewatched all of those like Pretty Woman, yes. Freaky Friday, a Cinderella yeah. story, yeah, yeah. like all of those very cringy, you know, yeah. kind of blonde girl protagonist yeah, and romances. romance movies. And yeah. I think it's surprising with the the especially the early 2000s 90s yeah. movies i'm like wow this is actually so triggering but for some reason i'm able to completely bracket it off and like right. live through yeah. that and not and then if i watch an action movie with my partner and he's like into it and it's his guilty pleasure and i'll be like oh my word this is so Vacuous. fucked up from a patriarchal level <laughs> yeah. or whatever but yeah. i i give it a you know a get out of jail free card all the romance movies yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also, you know, that sort of nationalistic element is quite interesting. You know, the whole sort of massive move around K-dramas and Mm. why they're so popular and specifically the romances. Mm. Um, And I think with the K-dramas, we can see something of a sort of innocence and a predictability that you also see in the rom-coms that you're talking about and that you also see in the period dramas that Nicolene was talking about. Um, of course, a lot of the period dramas, you know, are set in the UK. Yeah. Um, and so there's also there something which I think is interesting from a national perspective. Like, what is it that we, why do we love these sort of, I mean, in the old days, there were these beautiful films that were made by the Merchant Ivory combination um, of directors. And they were often based on E.M. Foster novels. And those were wonderfully rich and intelligent and intellectual films based on really good literature. But there was also something sort of nostalgic mm. and romantic with a capital R mm. about them. Um, and I think partly what one was nostalgic for was this idea of England that maybe doesn't really exist, mm. but that is a celebration of culture in a way that's fairly humble, often self-deprecating, um, such a tonic, you know, compared to the sort of bolstered mega-nationalism we encounter today, whether in American or Chinese politics. So... You know, and this is true of a lot of British shows today as well, whether it's Downton Abbey or the IT crowd. Mm. Um, but of course, typically in the sort of uh, rom-coms like Four Weddings and a Funeral mm. and the later sort of Upstairs Downstairs uh, series like Downton Abbey. Mm. Um, but to get back to romances, 
<clears throat> one of the authors that I think is very interesting is Georgette Heyer, who is sort of this really famous British author who wrote Regency romances. Okay. Um, and a lot of the contemporary rom-coms, like the Nora Ephron rom-coms, for instance, are based on Georgette Heyer kind of style of writing. Um, I remember in a um, Harvard um, bookshop called The Coop, they had a whole series of um, Georgette Heyer novels, and there was a little tag, they have these little handwritten notes with them, and um, the note said, low on kissing, high on banter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really what Georgette Heyer did, so she wrote from the 1920s to the 1960s, but she wrote these sort of rom romances which were set in the early 19th century, so they were called Regency romances, which of course something like Bridgerton is as yeah, well, yes. also Regency romance. Um, but they were sort of sassy, smart heroines, um, often, you, you know, not the most attractive heroines, but really kind of clever and kind and cool. Um, and then these men who are wealthy and who are um, funny and who are bored, basically. Mm. You know, they're aristocrats <laughs> and they've always dated extremely attractive women, but they're just kind of like find life tedious mm -hmm. because they don't have jobs and because... They, they, they date the same kind of women over and over again. And then for some reason, their paths cross with a woman who is, you know, the, the eldest child of, of five and mm. is an orphan and is looking after her younger siblings but and isn't that attractive but is smart as a whip and really sassy, challenging. Yeah. challenging. And then this man gets to kind of for the first time realize what it is to meet kind of his equal, you know, yeah. and find out how sexy this is. And then, you know, as the Harvard Coop said, there's this banter, there's this like yeah. back and forward banter, yeah. um, which is just really funny to read yeah. and really mm. clever and really entertaining. But of course, in a way, also extremely innocent and heteronormative and so from a 21st century perspective, we read this and it's guilty for us as a pleasure for so many reasons, mm. you know, partly because the politics of it feels so different from the contemporary climate, mm -hmm. yeah. so much simpler, so much less complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's also fascinating always those like British, yes. yeah, you mentioned the British setting and it's yes. funny watching that from a country like South Africa, right. you know, I think we have a different experience yeah. of, with those colonial type of stories than yeah. people watching it as a guilty pleasure in England. For them, yeah. it might be, you know, that nationalistic vibe. But for us, how do you read that extra layer? Of yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of nostalgia that we also have for a country that we interpret as being simpler than probably what it really is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. We think of our own country as one which is incredibly complex and layered. I mean, just in terms of language, we have, you know, 11 yeah. official languages, whereas in the UK, they have English, yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, even on that level, but I think also we identify with some of the sort of class narratives that you see in these these fictionalized um, texts, and I think some of that sort of complexity that you see, for instance, in Downton Abbey. Um, is something which we find gratifying because we're like, oh, there aren't just class struggles in South Africa, there are also class struggles mm. in other places. Um, and I think a narrative like Downton Abbey shows, for instance, I think Julian Fellows is really good at showing this, but Peter Morgan is good at showing it as well in, in The Crown, for instance, mm. that you have moral complexity in the upper classes, mm. but you also have moral complexity in the working classes. You know, you have good people and bad people in both, in both yeah. strat strata. Um, and I think, you know, with something like Georgette Heyer, where if you have these really sort of 
sassy heroines. Um, you, for instance, have, I mean, I, someone recommended Georgette Hayer to me and said to me, you know, you've got to read it just as kind of like a rite of passage. You know, everyone has to read <laughs> a Georgette Hayer in their lives. And I Googled Georgette Hayer. I was like, I cannot, I don't think I can read this. Like, this feels, and I found this really great article that Stephen Fry had written in The mm. Guardian about how much he loves Georgette Hayer. And of course, Stephen Fry, a queer man, you, yeah. know, yeah. From the, you know, upper class is not someone necessarily that you think of as this, you know, teenage girl reading mm. Regency romances. <laughs> um, but again, what he what he draws from this author is just the sharpness of the wit. Mm. You know, that it's just really funny. Yeah. And I think what um, one misses in a lot of contemporary, for instance, Hallmark Christmas movies, which, you know, proliferate at this time of year, and which now we have access to on Netflix, mm. and which are a kind of comfort food that I think a lot of people indulge in secretly without anybody knowing. You know? <laughs> um, it, it, what we miss in those kind of texts, and what I think make them real guilty pleasures rather than just pleasures, is the fact that often the writing is very bad. Mm. So where Georgette Heyer is actually written really well, um, some of these kind of Christmas movies, these these romances that you see on Netflix at the moment and that traditionally came from the Hallmark Channel, um, just the writing is bad. They're not clever. They're not yeah, funny. Mm-hmm. They're not sassy. Mm-hmm. Um, both the male and female characters, and now, of course, there's a whole array of queer ones as well, they're just not written well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if one does indulge in them, you kind of wish they would just spend a little bit more time getting the writing mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, because there, I think there is, it's, it's a sort of drug that one has at the moment, and I think a lot of those Christmas movies affirm a kind of, or bolster a kind of Americanism, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is all the worst parts of America, Mm -hmm. you know. The men are always very wealthy, the girls always come from sort of like New York or Chicago and then move to a small town. Um, and they're always cynical about Christmas, you know, they're, they're like the And Grinch. the in-laws. Yeah, they're always Everyone in-laws hates their family. Yeah, exactly. And then they go to the small town where they meet this guy who's, who appears to be sort of like the mechanic who fixes his car. <laughs> yeah. But actually, he's like a multi-million dollar tycoon. You or know? like a prime minister. <laughs> yeah, or, or a something. prime minister or something, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and then also, it's almost like adding to that is all that to like, the Christmas music, the Christmas consumerism, exactly. that exactly. even now in South Africa, I was sitting here the other day and I was like, do I buy a Christmas tree? Yes. Is this a guilty pleasure almost yeah. of like, there's nothing in me that wants to or sees yeah. a reason to, but everyone posting all their Christmas decorations yes. and Christmas everything. And yes. it's like, it's not even snowing here, but we yeah. have all these, yeah. you know, American Christmas yeah. traditions. Yeah. But it is, I mean, you raised the ethics, and I think yeah. Nicolene raised that earlier as well, this question of, you know, how does art imitate life and life imitate art? And, and I'm thinking, for instance, I have a friend who was in quite a serious car accident last year. She's a historian. She has a PhD. She's like a very good scholar. But she, she came to stay with me for a conference, and we had load shedding in the evenings, and we were just sitting in my bed in the dark. And the one night she said to me, we've been reading together since we were students because we studied English together. And over the years, you know, she'll write to me and say, check this out. And I'll write to her and say, check that out. And we had this sort of very confessional moment earlier <laughs> in the year where she was like, I have, I have to tell you about something. And I was like, oh, what is this? <laughs> you know, this sounds interesting. And then she sort of blamed her neurosurgeon. And she said because she'd had this car accident, the neuro 
neurosurgeon or the neurologist had said to her, she shouldn't do any intellectual heavy lifting. She shouldn't be doing research, she shouldn't be writing, she shouldn't be reading scholarly work. Um, but she can, re- apparently, <laughs> she said, <laughs> she's, allowed to, she's allowed to read sort of like rubbishy romance novels. Oh, and nice. so, and so I was like, okay, but that doesn't sound so bad. And she was like, well, some of them, they fall into two categories. And I was like, okay, what are these categories? And she was like, well, some of them are quite innocent and some of them are not. And I was like, okay, tell me about the ones that are not. And so she started reading this author called Lisa Claypas, who's an American author writing about Victorian England um, again, in this this sort of um, Regency period, or or yeah, actually the Victorian period, which was a bit later, but um, this is like straight up mommy porn. Um, it's like Georgette Heyer, but w- w- like erotica. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up starting to read one, and I was like, oh, this is terrible. I can't, I can't do this. I just can't do it. And then I went on to Goodreads, and because she wrote to me again while I was overseas, and she said to me, please, please, just try this. Just please try it. Persist. <laughs> and um, so I went on to Goodreads, and I, I kind of did a search on Lisa Claypass's novels, and I found out that you know a lot of her novels score out of four out of ten which is i mean you know even like nobel laureates don't get that right you know her stuff really now obviously it works on popularity so it's not necessarily that it's really good literature which i can vouch for the fact that it really isn't (laughs) but i wonder you know what is it that women get out of these books and specifically i think it's mainly women readers but i think one of the things that you get out of it, and this, Nicoline, I would be interested to hear what both you and Jana say about this in terms of your own relationships, is that the books offer a kind of sex which is written by women for women. Mm. Um, and so all the sort of problems that women have in real sexual relationships are anticipated you know, yes. by um, these male heroes or yeah. protagonists in these novels. Yeah. Who, again, you know, the women in the novels are not the most beautiful. They're sort of, I mean, the one series is called The Wallflowers. And it's literally about, you know, four or five debutantes who nobody wants to dance with. And nobody wants to go take to the ball. And then how they kind of sort of work together to find husbands for each other. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's it's politically, like, super suspect. But again, funny, clever really sassy heroines and the men too are you know like funny clever characters Mm -hmm. um and and really progressive kind of ways in which they write about the sex even within a kind of heteronormative framework Mm -hmm. um and so this friend of mine is married has been married for almost 20 years now and is finding these novels like a way of revitalizing some of her kind of like sexual energy Mm -hmm. in a relationship yeah, I think I can relate to that a lot because what came to me was also that intimacy that the characters in the books take time to to develop and spend time on, but it, it doesn't. It's not that hard, you know. It's always, yes. you know, yes. like there's time, and I think that's why I like these period dramas and these Regency kind of um, love stories a lot. Is that there's not so much distraction. The focus is on the romance and the relationship mm-hmm. and the intimacy, and it, it kind of it seems to come easily, but there's so much time for it, you know. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely yeah. right. Which is a, a kind of intimacy in life that I feel like we don't we have. Don't have. Yeah. So much anymore mm. and even in terms of like the wittiness to have 
um, to have a witty conversation and have yeah. sass and banter between each other that, that takes like some commitment which I feel like in an instant culture we don't actually develop yeah. between each yeah, other yeah, anymore yeah. where when I started chatting to my partner in grade 8 and we had like mix it for the first time <laughs> yeah. we spent hours and hours in this conversation that felt like one of these yes. you know yeah. drama and novels yeah because like, then you chat to your friend about yeah. this message yes. and it's this whole debate yeah. and now we're so flooded with like all the the different social media yeah. platforms that that kind of um, te- relationship doesn't I feel form so easily and often yeah and I, and I completely agree with like sex written by women for women yeah and I think in that there's a kind of empowering thing for the person reading it because yeah. you can imagine yourself then asking for those things yeah or at least live through someone else that is claiming yeah. some kind of agency in their sex life or, or maybe it's just lucky enough to get it the way that they want it exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Where in real life it needs to be developed. It's like yeah. it's yeah. like this constant, yeah. I remember as well, you know, reading an article many, many years ago when I started doing research about porn. And people kept saying to me, yeah, but porn is not just for men. Porn is also for women. And then I'd be like, yeah, but, you know, the research is kind of, you know, that, that it's much harder to turn women on than it is to turn men on. And so there was all this stuff being written by psychologists sort of in the 80s about, you know, I mean, there were a lot of memes about this too, that for a man to be turned on, you know, we just need to show up naked. Mm -hmm. And for a woman to be turned on, you need porn in which the male protagonist is sort of like a fireman, you know, (laughs) saving a cat from a tree and like helping an old lady across the street. And, you know, he has to sort of like prove himself as a good person. Um, And I I don't think all of that is still true. I think our tastes are much more diverse now than maybe what they were earlier. But um, I do think that this kind of narrative construction of sex is something which is um, an indulgence that's different from just flicking on the, you know, the, the computer and mm. just watching porn in a mm. kind of quite direct way. This yeah. is a, and I like what you're saying, Nicolene, about sort of time. Yeah. Yeah. Both the time that you invest in reading the novel exactly. and the time that the novel awards romance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. without the sort of distractions of work and mm-hmm. everyday life and, you know, kids and pets and, mm-hmm. you know, all the drama of politics and having to read the newspaper every day and mm-hmm. <laughs> make food and, yeah. yeah, clean the toilets and all the stuff yeah. that interferes with romance. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say when you said the banter, no kissing, or yes, that, yes. that note. Low on kissing, high on banter. That there's something very erotic about the banter, yes. and then almost like the the novels that are not necessarily as steamy as in writing the actual sex, but the, the tension. Yes. You know? oh, yes. The tension is what is so oh, erotic. Absolutely. And, and, and that tension also takes energy and yeah. time to cultivate in reality. But yeah. like that tension is just written in there, you know? Yeah. Just, so in these Lisa Claypas novels, there's also sort of like questions about consent, you know, uh, <laughs> because yeah. I mean, you get this a little bit in texts like Bridgerton as well and in, in Julia Quinn stuff, but there's, there's sort of like the first third of the book, she's really resistant. She doesn't want to, you know, mm. she thinks he's a rogue. Mm. She thinks he's annoying, but they have this like electric banter that really is born out of a sort of mutual attraction and animosity you know mm. kind of always yeah, they really hate, like, hate each yeah. other but they love each other they play fight there's this like sexy fighting all the time and then at some point of course say like, we're rompel you know yeah. she, she she either dominates him or he dominates her but at, at but definitely consent is not really something that yeah. you're having. It's not yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. just talk about what's going to happen yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think even in the 21st century, 
there's this there's this way in which I think these novels gratify precisely by circumnavigating some of our morality you know yeah. our ethical kind of mm -hmm. considerations that in real life i think are very necessary mm -hmm. yeah but in the world of the imaginary you know sometimes we need to circumnavigate those mm -hmm. and even give ourselves permission to do that and that's again partly what makes these pleasures guilty yeah exactly yes. i'm yeah. i'm thinking even of like video games and how yes. like i started like shooting all these people yeah. and being so happy yeah. when i you know you get so energized and i'm like what i'm like yay I'm, like i'm you know kind of almost like why are you making this difficult for me yeah. i'm gonna get you and like yeah. you know just like killing people stealing all of these actions that yeah. you would never do and it's the same with the the typical script of the rom-com of like first no the whole no means no conversation yes, yes, and yes. how that's just basically the plot of the movie it's yeah. going from no to yes yeah, yeah, yeah. or not even yes just yeah, yeah. it's happening yeah. <laughs> it's happened yeah yeah so i mean i guess the pleasure of risking shame is kind yeah. of an interesting topic for me you know the fact that that risk of someone finding out, you know, what you're watching and that you're watching something that doesn't align with your politics in yeah. your life. Yeah, you know, exactly. I think that that risk is also part of the pleasure. But I like what you're saying about violence and I like the fact that you as a as a woman like have that experience, you know, because I do wonder if there isn't a broad way, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but if there isn't a broad way that, that guilty pleasures are gendered. Mm. Um, and I just really read a, a fantastic book um, a, by um, someone who was writing about his love for hip hop and, and how it's influenced his life and, and so on. But also the kind of ethical conundrums he has with hip hop because of the sort of violence and consumerism mm. and misogyny and etc. And I, you know, I was wondering, I mean, I know a lot of women that listen to hip hop, but I do think that there is a way in which men maybe gravitate towards the kind of action movies, mm. war movies, Game of Thrones, Fast and the Furious, you know, Transformers and things that maybe speaks to a, a need for violence in the same way that maybe women have a need for, you know, desire or desirability or something. I don't know if one can gender along those lines or if that's just really politically incorrect. But, but I've also wondered the same thing. Because yeah. I, I, I notice it in my relationship, how we gravitate to, like, my partner just, his guilty pleasure is, like, all these sports, you yes. know, websites and even, yeah. like, people who do sports betting and sports, yeah. everything now with the, the Soccer World Cup yeah. as well. Like, we are yeah. so invested in this household. Yeah. But there's, there's almost a lack of guilt for those type of pleasures it that a pleasure? it isn't yeah. a guilty pleasure yeah. but if i were to do that yeah like it, our guilty pleasures as you said aren't equal to the extent that some things that should probably be a guilty yes. pleasure isn't for yeah. me yeah um or that's maybe yeah. where the gendering gets warped that it's almost like women are the people who do guilty pleasures yes, yes. it's not a yes um because most, yeah, because oh, even gaming, yeah. if you think about it, and all the shooting, it's it's a common thing to say, like, why would you do that? You're perpetuating yeah. violence. But it's it's kind of, 
it's become, accepted. Yeah. Action movies and all of that. It's yeah. more almost yeah. everyone can participate yeah. in that. It's almost become aspirational in a way. Yeah, yeah that's very yeah. interesting. So the gendering is also a kind of built-in morality. Like yeah. when women do it, it's not a good thing. And when men do it, it's aspirational. Yeah. yeah. And what I'm thinking now is um, besides the political correctness of the text that I'm, that make me, makes me feel guilty because I invest time in it, it's the time piece that makes me feel guilty. The amount yes. of time yes. I spend on these texts yeah. and just thinking in terms of Afrikaner household that I came yeah. out of, my mom and my grandmothers are always busy, you know, yes. they're busy work, yeah. busy, 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 busy. And yeah. then the only times I actually saw them taking time for themselves were with these kind of yeah, novels yeah. in their hands, you know, right. or watching a kind of mm, yeah. movie that completely shipped them into another world that is oh, so wow. romanticized. Yeah. But then the guilt was like, oh my word, I spent so much time on this book. Yeah. Now I have to, you know, and yeah. I have to go clean the and house. And that was so. the era before K-dramas. <laughs> Each episode is like 90 minutes and there's like 24 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And just binging in yeah. general, binging culture. But Jan, I want to ask you, because I know you watch reality TV. Mm. And I mean, I think this is an interesting sort of phenomenon in terms of time. Like, you know, because I think something that we all feel guilty about is watching reality TV. Like, it's yeah. still easier to justify some other kinds of guilty pleasures. But when you're watching sort of like the real housewives, of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in terms of, you know, the gendering of pleasure. Like, yeah, yeah tell us about that. Yeah, I just think it's so fascinating. Like, I I, I remember my, guilt, my reality TV journey started in high school where a lot of my friends, it was very normal in their households to watch reality TV. Like, the Kardash- Keeping Up with the Kardashians, Kardashians was always kind of just on. People yeah. knew what was up. Um, and I just remember when I would visit a friend and we could watch these shows together. Yeah. It was just so fun for me because it's the type of thing that was never, I didn't even know it existed, yeah. you know. It was just <laughs> never spoken of in, in the setting that I grew up yeah, in. Yeah. So I remember actually coming home from school sometimes just when we got DSTV. And then there was like an hour or two before my mom would come home or whatever. And my guilty pleasure was then like keeping up with the Kardashians <laughs> and two minute noodles. <laughs> they went together, like my yeah, lunch, yeah. two minute noodles. There's something about Your like eating that yeah, <laughs> at the same time they go together. And I just think it was the type of femininity, firstly, that was kind of portrayed and like all yes. of that drama and it's so yeah it was so in a way removed from my life that yeah. it was just it's fascinating to see it's like seeing yeah. a tiger with five eyes or something yes. it's like this weird world yes. that that I that I didn't know existed yeah. and obviously that doesn't exist per yeah. se the whole realness of reality and TV what but do you think was the source of your pleasure in that I mean I hear what you're saying about it being alien and foreign and whatever but I'm trying to think in terms of myself yeah. too because I've also watched the Kardashians and there's something I mean I would sit for instant for like 10-15 minutes watching Chloe or whoever put yeah. their makeup on yes you know where I myself wear very little makeup yeah somehow the fascination almost like a morbid fascination yeah. with these incredibly done up women yes exactly it's that like i think the the the, their own aesthetics but then also their houses yeah and the kind of richness of it all like the the fanciness of their cars and the yeah you know just everything with that conspicuous consumption yeah consumption and um you know, also the romance, I guess. There's yeah. always the boyfriends, the yeah. drama with their romance. Yeah. But um, recently now, when I've, I've, I've watched the new Kardashians that's on Disney, and um, 
it's interesting because they've obviously transformed so much. And then I found this Instagram page that's called Kardashian Colloquium. I don't know if you've heard about it, but she's actually a media studies, you know, she has a PhD and she analyzes Kardashian episodes. And every, after every episode, she posts a blog that's like, what kept me up after watching this episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And then she would use like Roland Barthes, media theory, all of this, and like kind of analyze them. And she would take like screenshots of their texts. And and so for me, what was interesting is always that thing of like, this is not something that, you know, my feminism or my theory, it's so removed from it. But at the same time, I think the fascinating part about it is that it reflects so much that we learn like it, yeah. it's such a, a, a yeah. powerful there's so much actual politics in it yes. that it's almost like a, a um yeah a visual portrayal of the type of things you can criticize and yeah. you can see it play out and I there's mean, ambiguity in it because yeah. there's so much enjoyment from it and you almost start yeah. defending them like oh kim you know <laughs> she isn't that bad and she's then you a more complex figure than yeah you think. yeah i mean i think for me what the times that I've watched those series and, and also stuff like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette yeah, yeah. or whatever, it reminds me a little bit of the way in the 90s we used to watch soap operas, you mm. know, like Bold and Beautiful or Egoli or whatever. And what I like about it is, you know, there was at that stage this philosopher called Jean Baudrillard who used to write about simulacrum or about hyperreality, this world that in a way is more real to you than the real world. You know, yeah. you have these people who write to soap opera stars and say, please don't divorce Ridge, he's such a nice man. You yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think reality shows have become a little bit like that. I mean, there's one at the moment that's on Netflix, it's just brought out a second season, it's called something like My Unorthodox Live or something like this, which is about... Um, an orthodox Jewish woman who left the faith and married a man and now in the second season is divorcing him um, and her children and they're extremely wealthy. Um, She's one of the CEOs of um, this modeling agency and so they're of course all incredibly glamorous and beautiful and sexy and you know the whole show is about them sort of prancing around in their penthouse (laughs) and like lycra onesies yeah (laughs) but i wonder you know what is it that why would i watch this and what is the pleasure that i get from it and i think of this you know idea that borderline had of hyper reality which and simulacrum which is in some ways a kind of holiday from the real. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's in some ways it's it's a reality that's an alternate or a parallel universe to your real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's a I think a holiday from your real political persuasions as well. Exactly. You know, you might be quite woke in reality, mm. but secretly over the weekend, you know, you're binge binge watching the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 don't really and I think what's important to understand in terms of guilty pleasures is that as adult viewers, we can really, to some extent, suspend our disbelief. Mm. We can we can bracket our political experience in terms of our, our consumption habits, in terms of the way we consume entertainment. It doesn't necessarily speak to the reality of what we believe or what we feel mm. politically. Um, it's a way of, in some ways, taking a holiday yeah. from our political convictions, yeah. um, escaping to some extent, trying on someone else's politics, standing in their shoes, putting on their clothes, you know, theatrically kind of practicing what it would feel like to be in their shoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I'm thinking of Bushika Frau now, yes. mm. because um, I struggle to watch it, but I, I can watch it with people if we can laugh 
about the same things. If yeah. we're laughing at the people and we're not seriously involved, I can watch it. I need I need people to be aware of the fact that it's ridiculous yeah. if they watch it. Yeah. Yeah. If they're invested, I cringe so much. <laughs> like yeah. and, and and it's that voyeurism that I'm allowed to kind of look into what is portrayed as real yeah. and I'm allowed to actually watch these people that live in the same country as me pretend to be real because obviously it's not there's a million of cameras and like what how they respond and, and imagining how I would respond and I think in that sense it's sometimes good to be able to practice that because if we bring a little bit of that practicing to be in someone else's shoes and that politics maybe for me it doesn't make me so reactive when I am in reality face with someone that I I could disagree with if I'm like I can yeah, give kind of empathy yeah mm. if I can give Kim Kardashian you know like <laughs> 40 minutes of my time then I can give this person that I disagree with yeah. as well yeah. you know so great, yeah. great justification skills there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Reality TV fosters empathy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if done right. For the super rich and the super hot. Yeah. Um, but I think also there's an element of sort of when we watch reality TV, we're regressing into our youth. Mm. Yeah. And and maybe let's talk about that a little bit. I think, mm. Nicolene, you, you mentioned earlier that you're interested in sort of series that do this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what of you there is of course a sort of fashionable interest in youth at the moment and specifically youth as a time of sexual awakening or coming of age um, I think of Bridgerton which we've mentioned which was based on Julia Quinn's novels about Regency England or the Netflix series Never Have I Ever mm, about a sort of yeah. Indian American teenager um, yeah I mean what have you been watching I watched Wednesday um, and I watched Sex Education. Yeah. Um, and I think what what I identify with in these um, in these texts is the the not fitting in and that mm. drama mm. of teenage like oh my life is over. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> he loves me. Yes, exactly. And 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 um, not fitting in as an arty kid because there's always in these series, especially the new ones in Netflix, this emphasis on not fitting in. Yeah, and centric being, artists. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And that in sex education is really great. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Also trans character. Yeah, and mm. then so that in sex education, there's actually quite a few of them that had mm. that had this kind of like their otherness <laughs> made them not fit in and then eventually they found their group and then they mm. fit in you yeah. know and the same with Wednesday it's like the the she doesn't fit in but it's her weirdness that makes her desirable which mm. is something I didn't experience in my youth you know my yeah. weirdness did not make me desirable yeah. so there's something about like finding comfort in that um yeah and 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 it's complicated because it's their lives but actually the narrative is not that complicated yeah and I also feel like when you watch these teen shows it yeah it takes you back to that teenage perspective not just like who you were in high school whatever but actually a time in which you weren't necessarily so aware of all the politics everything in the world you know it's almost like you can erase your adulting self from for that moment in time because you you almost as you said you regress to the moment where the protagonists are as well in the series it yeah it almost feels like I, I i don't know the things that i know when i yeah watched some of those shows yeah i think there is a sort of innocence that one returns to and i think yeah. as adults you know reading teen fiction or young adult fiction is a guilty pleasure precisely because you shouldn't be reading it you know <laughs> you should be reading dostoevsky yeah. <laughs> instead you're reading jk rowling but I, I think that there is also i mean i hear what you're saying about innocence but i think there are also why a 
narratives which have a sort of philosophical or political agenda. And I think sometimes this is quite interesting as well, the way adult issues are addressed through, through the eyes of children. Mm. So for instance, in Harry Potter, you know, I think J.K. Rowling makes the sort of profound argument that friendship and romantic love is at its best, it's at its purest, it's at its most satisfying when it is born out of a greater battle or shared objective or shared cause. Um, you know, if you look at, for instance, the Twilight series, you see that there's a, a truly kind of Byronic narrative in which the whole project or plot or war revolves around Edward and Bella getting together or not mm. getting together. And this to me is really just kind of trite and silly and idiotic and reminds me of, you know, Lord Byron and Shelley and those guys. Whereas in Harry Potter, the kids act in utterly sort of selfless ways for the greater good. I mean, they sacrifice their lives to save the world from an evil only they can see and almost fall in love by accident. Mm, you know, they almost yeah. fall in love as a sort of side note mm. during a kind of shared project. Mm. Um, the Hunger Games, I think, Suzanne Collins' uh, novels, you know, are really the best YA fiction that I've ever read. Um, they're amazingly sophisticated um, in terms of being a narrative about class and economics and spectatorship and, and even love. Um, I think this is one of the most nuanced love stories. Really also deals with, I mean, Nicolene, this goes back to your earlier point. I think in The Hunger Games, Suzanne Collins also deals with the question of having gone through so much with a single person that you almost can't love them anymore, mm. um, but also feel tied to that person, which I think is something that a lot of people in marriage struggle with. Mm. You've been through so much together, you've raised children together, you've bought a house together, you've paid off a mortgage together, whatever. So now you almost can't feel sexy towards each other anymore. All the energy and joy and playfulness is gone. But at the same time, you can't imagine being with anybody else because, mm. you know, precisely you've been through so much together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Collins, I think, deals with some of those kinds of really adult narratives through the eyes of children. It's almost like, you know, George Orwell for children. Mm. Very mm. ethical storytelling. Doesn't manipulate the reader or make the kinds of grand arguments that leave you questioning reality. Um, these are really books that I would say restore your faith um, in humanity and, in, and give you a kind of hope for the future rather than, than robbing you of this. Yeah. I'm also a tremendous lover of Philip Pullman. Um, if you haven't read his stuff, I highly recommend it. I read his Dark Materials trilogy when I was younger. And his new books, there is also a trilogy, the first two have been published already, called The Book of Dust. third one should be coming out any day now. Um, but in these books, you know, the agenda is that he attempts to defame Christianity and one can't help but feel that this motive sort of burdens the texts in a way that actually detracts from the novels. Um, they feel a little bit heavy handed, mm. um, a little bit transparent, you know, maybe in the same way that C.S. Lewis, I think, does as well, or J.R. Tolkien does as well, but maybe more so with Philip Pullman, you know, that there's something of the political agenda that kind of dominates mm -hmm. in a way that you don't see in the Hunger Games or in the Harry Potter novels. Mm -hmm. Very yeah. interesting. And also, like, what I, what I think the difference is between watching, you know, reality TV and or um, any kind of guilty pleasure television and something that's a bit more sophisticated, a bit more, you know, there's maybe a moral 
incentive or you know a, a good agenda. moral compass or agenda yeah. is almost a lack of inspiration that yes. you get out of it at the end yes. like mm. even when i just watch you know chef's table yeah. as opposed to master chef yeah you know there's something really inspiring about how artistic it is yes. and the this the, the mode of storytelling right. or whatever where i feel like i actually want to go make a fresh bowl of pasta Amazing. now and not just eat two minute noodles there's yeah, almost yeah. that like elevation yeah, yeah aesthetic elevation. that i miss when i yeah. when i indulge in these guilty pleasures it's yeah. that the pleasure isn't at the end actually so yeah. high yeah. <laughs> it's like the so instant pure. gratification and then yeah. afterwards you feel a little bit gaga about and your yeah. life yeah because yeah. 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 that's how i feel when i watch kardashians for yeah. example which i yeah. that's why i don't watch yeah. it because afterwards i don't feel good yeah <laughs> yeah it's good and it's one of the it's like fast food like yeah. it's good in the moment and then yeah. you have Soy so, brand, so this brings us back to Rona Bud and yeah. the question of the you know sort of passive entertainment. Um, I think what we want and and what we need maybe especially over the holidays is the kind of passive enjoyment, the kind of joyful passive enjoyment that's also edifying. Yeah. You know that also elevates our taste levels to a certain degree. Yeah. Or, or if not teaching us, I mean if not pedagogical or didactic in any particular way, is something that. Um, restores our childlikeness our wonder in the world you know which i think chef's table is a great example of that you know a a sort of text that makes you feel like you want to be a better person you want to do better you want to make better sandwiches yeah you 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 have inspiration i think is the word that you used again um and i think it's entirely true that it is possible to find texts that are comforting and that are um, easy and that are um, relaxing and even that you enjoy in a sort of passive way um, but that are also entertaining yeah. you know and and edifying that mm. are texts that um, yeah lift your spirit and make you feel like a child again but in a in a way that restores the wonder of the yeah. world yeah just more wholesome more wholesome <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. Wow. Is there any conclusionary remarks or anything you want to say, or is it, are we going to go into another category? I just want to do a little check-in. What do you I guys think? I think that's it from me. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that was a that was a sweet ending in yeah. a way. I mean, maybe what I would ask you if if there, if there is any kind of guilty pleasure that you're specifically looking forward to enjoying over the holiday season. Oh, that's a good one. Oh, I think uh, uh, podcasts on the way to um, the Transkei. I'm going to the Eastern Cape, and we always listen to like serial, like kind of criminal. Oh, lovely! Like hours and hours and hours, and I feel a little bit guilty about them sometimes because they're not really um, stimulating. You know, anything. intellectual mm-hmm. and also kind of maybe perpetuating or glorifying violence yeah. you know a little yeah. bit because i'm <laughs> yeah. like listening to 16 hours of this intense murder and, yeah um but yeah i love the, yeah. listening to those kind of serial and yeah yeah, yeah. Great. yeah. this american Serial's life great. as well yeah. i love yeah. listening to this american life. i love this american yeah. life too. iron glass is brilliant yeah. and you probably listen to shit town yes yeah that's yes. amazing that was a good one yeah. that was a, a bit of a one that stayed with me a long time afterwards yeah. as well yeah, yeah think yeah. a bit about the human nature yeah actually that's a good point on the podcast because we are also going we're going to the kruger 
National Park. Park. Oh, and it's also going to be a lot of drive. Well, not driving there, but while we're there, we'll do a lot of driving, driving and podcasts. Yeah. And we also always listen to true crime. And also there's this Harry Potter podcast of this guy that's an adult reading Harry Potter for the first time and he reacts to it. Oh, so funny. definitely a lot of regressing into yeah, youth, yeah, youth, you know, youth, Harry yeah. Potter and the types of novels that I'm looking yeah. forward to reading. That's also, yeah. I guess, lighter. And then also we always get like so much drivels and biltong and just eat that <laughs> in the yeah. car it's like our yeah. only meal for the day yeah, like that yeah. type of habit is definitely a guilty pleasure that i'm looking forward to yeah i mean food is a great guilty pleasure yeah exactly. i think in the holidays I mean, yeah. especially over the christmas holidays i just eat so many mince pies <laughs> i just like totally indulge on mince pies but the thing that I'm watching at the moment, I've actually just literally just started watching it, is a web series called High Maintenance. Do you guys know about oh, it? Oh, yeah. is it about, I think I know about it's it. It's about yeah. a guy called The Guy, who is the dope dealer yes, in yes. Brooklyn. And each episode, so it was a web series, there's six seasons. I think on Showmax you can actually watch yeah, the I think original I've web, the first web one, season yeah. and you can watch a new kind of HBO remake of it. But it's really funny because the episodes are, are literally only like five or ten minutes long. And each episode is uh, where this the guy, this dealer, goes to someone's house and gives them dope. And kind of, you know, the clientele that he has. Mm. And it's such a beautiful portrait of Brooklyn, New York. It's such a wonderful portrait of, you know, our kind of drug culture in the 21st yeah. century. It's such a wonderful human kind of example of connection and the way in which people sort of struggle with their home lives and mm. find relief in this very particular way. Mm. Um, but a very beautiful story of connection I just I love it and it's a guilty pleasure because it's almost entirely vacuous but um, it is a pleasure because you do feel like in a very short span of time you kind of have dipped into someone's life in this very poetic little vignette amazing well enjoy (laughs) thank you Stella and maybe then the the end note of this is not to stay stimulated because that's what we always say at the end but maybe we don't have to be stimulated (laughs) yeah exactly that awesome well yeah and let us know about your guilty pleasures maybe the listeners can send us a message love to hear what you indulge in over the holidays yeah Ered is a team effort it is produced by Nicolene Berger and Jana Fosler Morgan Loebscher contributes visually by creating beautiful artworks and social media content. Tabukro can produce the intro and outro music and reach out to us if you have an idea of how Erit can expand. And remember, stay stimulated. stimulated. <laughs>